You are listening to the First Baptist Jinx podcast. To learn more about FBC Jinx, including our gathering times, visit us online at fbcjinx.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Cody Brumley. Hey, good morning, church family. It is good to be with you. We are in Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, open Ephesians chapter 2. Those joining us online, we are glad that uh, you are watching. Uh, It is our hope that this encourages you, but also that you would find some connection and Christian community to grow with. And those in overflow, thank you as always for making space and enjoying uh, kind of the sensory environment there. I pray that today is good for you as well. Um, Ephesians 2, as we get there, we are wrapping up our series, You Are Here. Uh, So we're going to go through the whole book of Ephesians, but this first section really is about understanding your place in God's story. That's how Paul opens us up for the church, and that's what we're going to conclude today because it's no more clearly stated than in Ephesians 2, to understand exactly your place in the story and what is true about the story that you are in. And and that's what makes this moment somewhat challenging uh, Anytime we approach the Bible, we have to overcome some natural uh, habits and some just cultural influences to be able to hear it for what it says. And one of those shows up today because what Paul expresses uh, could be called culturally insensitive today. As Paul writes this next section of the text, he is telling other people what is true about them. Right? That's something that's uh, downplayed today, but this is what he does. He says, you don't know this. This is truth For you, this is what's true about your story. And in this, he's going to tell them uh, they are not their own. They are the influence of who they are under. That everyone is under a master, and that's exactly who they were. It's who they are. And then lastly, he's going to say, your story, as much as you want it to be your story, and it's unique and specific to you, and and there's elements of that 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 make sense, uh, your story is woven into this much larger story. That what you're experiencing and walking through personally is actually true of every human throughout all humanity. So your story is the same as all of our story. And there's a lot of those things that we might not naturally clue into and, and be as quick to believe, but we have to believe what is, what is true. Because truth matters, right? And the whole story matters, doesn't it? I mean, I've got a six-year-old Brother likes to show up with candy in his hand and say, Dad, eat this. Now, is that enough of a story for me to take proper action? No. If you say yes, I've got other stories for you, right? Like, no, it's not. He says, eat this. And what do I say? I say, great, where's that from? And he says, just from me, right? Which we also know is not the whole story. He did not will candy into existence. He found that somewhere. I didn't give it to him. It came out of his pocket where his cricket lives. Uh Uh-uh, I'm not eating that. Why? Because I know the whole whole story matters, right? We have to have the whole story to make the right decisions. And so Paul is writing to the church at at Ephesus, and he has told them all these great truths about God. He's worshiped God. He said, this is how I'm praying for you. And now he takes all this truth he's been saying, and he puts it in the form of a narrative. He says, here's the whole story, And you need to know this. And he paints this picture for them so they can understand where they're at in the story. And he does this in kind of three sections. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is meant to be understood together, but it unravels in three different areas. The first one, the first one is a natural condition. Verses 1 through 3, he starts with a natural condition, and Paul paints this pretty dark and grim picture of the natural condition of humanity. 
And then in verses four through seven, he steps into God's salvation. Really, that kind of bleeds into verse eight a little bit. So it's a natural condition. I'm sorry, uh, then God's intervention. That's the next section, God's intervention, where God shows up and how he meets us in the natural condition. And the last section, eight through 10, is our salvation, how we experience today what it looks like to live as people that have been saved, our salvation. So let's start in Ephesians 2 and see this first bit of this painting of our story. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what does Paul start for them? He says, you were, by the way, this is past tense because he's talking to believers and he's saying, this is what was once true of you. What was true of them? He says, you were, verse two, or verse one. But then you turns into verse three, we, among whom we all walked. Now, why is there a you and a we? If you go back to Ephesians one, you're gonna see Paul's writing to these Gentile believers of the church in Ephesus. And he's saying, you Gentile believers have this experience. And Paul says, we Jewish believers have had this experience. Now, we'll get more into this next week, but essentially, if you're new to uh, church history or the Christian faith or any of those things, the story of salvation, God brought salvation to mankind through his people, through the Jewish people, the Hebrew people. And so they were there. They were looking for the Messiah the whole time. And so God brought the Messiah through them. So the early church believers, they were Jewish believers. But his plan was always Gentile believers. Gentile is everybody else, non-Jews. And so in that sense, he's going, you, everybody else that God has now brought into him to believe, have this unique history from we. However, Gentiles and Jew, you get to the end of verse Three, it says, we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul is saying there's something that is true of you, that is true of me, that is true of all of us. Now this is significant because you, Gentiles, were generally stated to be, under, uh, to be devoted secular people. They were devoted to the things that were not about God. But Paul says, I'm in this with you. And Paul was the religious of religious people. Paul was killing Christians in the name of God. There was no one more devoutly religious in that sense than Paul was. So Paul goes, hey, you, devout secular person, and me, devout religious person, we're actually all on the same playing field. What I'm about to tell you is true of every person, and that includes us today. So what was true of all of us? What were we doing? Well, it says we were trespassing, verse 1. It says we were sinning. It says that we were walking in these. Walking is the Bible term for just everyday life. Whenever it says walk, it just means your ordinary existence. So just a regular existence of humanity is one of trespasses and sins. Trespasses, when you see in scripture, trespass or transgression, what it's saying is there's an explicitly stated command of God that you are willingly saying, I don't want to do that. I, the law has been made, I know the law, and I'm choosing against it. That's a trespass or a trespass or a transgression. And then sins, sinning is the expression of our sinful nature, which means sins means there may not be an explicit like law against it, or you may not know a law against it, but what you are doing is contrary to the teaching and the character and the nature of God. 
She may go, well, there's not an exact rule against this that I'm trespassing, but the way I am treating this person is sinful. And he says, that, explicitly breaking the commands of God and just treating other humanity in a way that's not the way God would say you be treated is just how you live. And you live that way, why? Because you are following, is the next word, the course of this world, you are following the prince of the power of the air. There's two things it says we're following. Another word, some of the other translations may say according to, you are in accord with, in step with. You are being influenced by two things, the course of this world, that is our culture that you are in. I like the word current, right, for current events. That picture helps me because current is not just a timestamp, it's now. Current is something that exists in a river, right? It's moving a direction. And so we may not realize it, but we are in a current culture, which means that there is a direction that culture is pushing us. And just like whenever you walk across a river, you thought you were walking straight and you end up way over here. Why? Because the current just takes you that way. And he says, you're under the current influence of the world. And guess who's influencing that culture? The prince of the power of the spirit. I'm sorry, the prince of the power of air, the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. Prince and power are two of those authority, I'm sorry, power words that showed up in chapter one. Right, whenever we saw those four hostile powers that fall under Jesus, but they're at work today. Two of those words are right here, the, the prince of the power. It's saying, here's our regular life that you and I experience, right? Here's our regular life. Here's heaven. Here's where we know God's in charge. Jesus is there, authority of all things. Between the two is this concept he gives us of air. There's this space, this spiritual reality, where even though Satan is defeated, like an army that's been defeated, but there's this rebel cell that says, we lost the war, but we're just going to keep raging, taking down as many people as we can. That's the enemy. Satan exists in this space doing work against God and against his children. And he says, that is who you are following. And he is at work still, because he changes from past into present, at work in the sons of disobedience. Everyone who's disobeying God Satan is influencing, Satan is influencing the culture that is influencing them. And it's not just on culture and it's not just on the devil. It says, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh. So our passion inside of us, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, our body and our mind and our flesh, we desire, we will, we have passion for things against God. So we have these external forces that are moving us this way. We have this internal reality that we want what we want. We don't want what God wants, not naturally. We want what we want to feel. We want to think what we want to think. And Paul says, this is all of us. And it is fit for the wrath of God. We were by nature. Our nature is this, and that deserves God's wrath. He's gonna go on later in Ephesians 5 or 6, to say, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, these things are referring to the sins and the trespasses we just talked about. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So, so a concept that God isn't going to execute his wrath on sin is false. So we deserve the wrath of God because we are against God. And the word that's used there, if this whole section could be summarized in one word, it was found in chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead. What is our natural condition? Dead. 
And you might be like, well, Cody, that is a whole lot of activity for a dead person. I just want to say they're trespassing, they're sinning, they're passioning, they're desiring, and they're thinking like, mm, dead people don't do that. And you're right, that is a lot of activity for a dead person. The idea here is where Paul says this is everybody, for all have sinned, Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Fall short could also be understood as and is separated from the glory of God, is cut off from the glory of God. For all have sinned and are dead to the glory of God. It means we are spiritually cut off from, separated from, have no sense of the glory of God, his presence, his power, his promises. We don't, we're completely blind to it. We are dead. Brianna and I got a picture of a dead fish from a friend. I won't tell you the story. It'll take too long to explain, but there's, there is a reason to get this. And, there's just, and the thing is, there's a dead fish in this tank. It was moving, right? Why does it move? Because there's a current and there's water and there's life around it. And so there's other things happening. It's a skeleton of a fish and there's a lot of activity in there, but that fish doesn't know it. It's dead. Can't sense it. Paul says, this is humanity to the things of God. We are by nature just blind to the things of God, thinking that our passions and our desires, what we want, what we feel, that drives us and we have a right to that. And that drives us right towards death. And you might hear this and go, Cody, that's like a super grim picture. And you're also applying it to me, which isn't very friendly. <laughs> right? Like, I love you, which is why I'm telling you the truth. And it's why Paul told the truth. It's truth and love. This is us. And you might even think, I don't remember my life before God that way. That would be a logical thought. Like, okay, and that's true for me. All right, like, I praise God, he came after me when I was just a tiny tot, right? So like I'm a little kid, six-year-old Cody, was not much of a thug. Like this explanation didn't really sound like me. That's why we need this. We need truth because truth is not based on my feelings and truth is not based on my experiences. Truth is based on what God has dictated to be true. And without this, I could think maybe God didn't really save me from that much. Without this, maybe I'd probably be fine on my own. No, this makes it explicitly clear. Without God's intervention of little Cody, 37-year-old Cody is this. 37-year-old Cody is following his mind and his heart and his body to whatever he wants to get, have his way to think and feel the things he wants. A good friend of mine, Stephen Smith, last week had said it this way. That he'd said, this person, this description, by the way, whenever you think of people, those people that live this way doing those things, that is you without Jesus. Period. If you've ever looked at anyone and thought, oh my goodness, what they, yeah, that's you without Jesus. That is you dead to the things of God. So what hope do we have? The next two words. Chapter 2, verse 4. But God. Amen. Listen, if you, if you like, write in your Bible, underline your Bible, those, do that here. Circle it, star it, draw a happy dancing stick figure. It doesn't matter. Like, 
Pay attention to this. Two words. But God. We were dead in sins. We deserve God's wrath. That is rightfully our inheritance. We grow up in sin to the wrath of God. But God. Two-word testimony. This is the two-word testimony of every believer. I was dead, but God. I was addicted, but God. I was a slave, but God. I was angry, but God. Well, this is what my family said I had to be, but God. This is what my inheritance was, but God. This is how I spoke, but God. This is how prideful I was, but God. This is the religion I used to hurt people, but God. The list goes on for eternity. I was, but God. This, this is it. And we have to consider why. Verses one through three were not neutral to God. We were active against God in rebellion to God. We were blind to it, but we were raging with the enemy against him. But God, why would he do this? We get our answer. Because he is rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming age he might show what is the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Why did he do this? So he could display for every generation that comes the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. Why did he do this? So that the generation after me can look at my life and go, I, I see someone who's different than the world there's hope. I see a different outcome of life. There is hope. Why did he do this? Because of his very nature. Look all the way back up there. Because he's rich in mercy. Again, if you're writing your Bible, he's rich in mercy. So we have our natural condition as we are dead, and now we're getting into God's intervention and is motivated rich in mercy. Don't think value. Think abundance. Think amount. That's how uh, scripture uses the word rich. So it's like he has an amount, abundance. Some scholars put it this way. It's like he has storehouses of mercy. Have you ever met someone who just has too much of something, right? They've got plenty of it. And so they're like, here, take some. No, I promise. Seriously, take it. I'm not even going to miss it. You walk into someone's house, they got pies everywhere. And they're like, please, have pie. They're like, I don't know if I can. They're like, no, like, take a pie. I've got plenty of pie. It's a lavish pies. If that's you, let me know. We should hang out, right? That's how people handle it when they've got too much. No, that's a picture of God. He's abundant in mercy. That is not how his wrath was described. His wrath is described from this grieving heart towards those that have rejected him. His mercy is described as this abundance that he just wants to lavish on us. He says he is great in love. It's his great love, not just his love, his abundant He's got more love than we can run out of. He has that for us. And it says, with which he loved us. When? Verse five. Even when we are dead in our trespasses. Connect those two verses. When did God love you? When you were dead in your trespasses. This is really important. This is important for us to understand. You were loved when you were verses one through three. You were not loved once you were raised to life, once you were seated with Christ, and once you were there, you were not loved. Once you were a Christian, you were not loved. Once you started doing better in your life, no, you were loved when you were in your heart a rebel against God, blind and dead to the things of God. That is when he loved you. That is a great love. 
That's where he loved you, and that's why he rescued you. This is grace. That's why he stops there to say, by grace, you've been saved. Why did God intervene? Because he's got an abundance of mercy. He's got endless love. Because even when you were sinning against him, he loved you then. And then, what did he do? Out of that great love, three things. He made you alive. It says he raised you up, and he seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This should sound familiar. Ephesians 1, that we went through last week, verse 20. That he worked in Christ. What work did he do in Christ? He raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly Father in places. So what is true of Christ, that he's been raised from the dead, he's been, that he's now with God and he's seated there, is how God sees you. God doesn't see you as sinning and trespassing and following this world. He doesn't see you as dead anymore. He sees you in Christ. When he looks at Jesus, where your faith is, that's what he sees. Forgiven, clean, his child, in heaven. And guess what? Jesus isn't getting pulled down from heaven anytime. So if you're in Christ, you are secure in Christ. It is eternal. That is how you are seen. When you place your faith in Jesus, you are united with Jesus. This is the work he did. So out of his great love and mercy and grace and kindness, he made a way that if you believe in Jesus, you unite with Jesus and you now exist with Jesus. That's how he sees you. In the heavenly places, so in the coming ages, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us might be seen in Christ Jesus. So that is there. If there's one word to summarize, this section, it would be the word grace. Our natural condition is death. God's intervention, grace. Grace. Unmerited favor. That's how I've heard it repeated most, most defined to me. It's defined as unmerited favor. You did not deserve it at all. God just willingly, because of who he is and what he can do, chose to show you grace. That's why he goes on to say, for by grace... You've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. You didn't save you. God did. Not a result of works. Right? You didn't earn God's love or mercy or any of those things. No, it's not a result of works so that no one can boast. Right? This is, as Dr. Smith said, this is me without Jesus is this mess, which means the only thing I've got to boast in is Jesus. I know where my sin was going to take me, and it doesn't take me anywhere now because now I've been made alive in Christ. Now I'm alive to the things of God. Now what does a, what does a dead person have to do with making themselves alive? Nothing. Right? Lazarus wasn't in the tomb when Jesus came by, and he's like, yo, Jesus, let me out. If you say come alive, I will. Nope. Lazarus was dead, completely cut off. No sensory perception. He was dead. Until what? Until Jesus spoke. The words of Jesus brought him to life. Now he's responding. Now he steps up and goes, I'm making my way out of this tomb. What do we have to do with making ourselves alive? We respond. We respond to Jesus' voice to us, who has given us life, made us alive, as God's done the work. And it says, for by grace... Right? What is grace? It's verses 4 through 7. Grace is that God was rich in mercy and great love, and he stepped in. For by grace you've been saved. Saved from what? We've been saved from the wrath of God that our natural condition deserves. We've got to agree with God on that. We're saved from the wrath of God to the mercy of God. 
So we are, by grace, God's intervention, we are saved from the natural outworking of our lives through faith. What is our experience of salvation? It's through faith. And what do we save to? I want to skip down and we're going to come back to that word faith. The way we experience this is verse 10. Our, our reality is for we are, present tense, notice the shift. It was past, now it's present. We are, right now, his workmanship. That's the Greek word, poema, which we get the idea of poem. We are his poetry. We are this beautiful, purposeful, written, articulated glory of God. That's what we are. We are his workmanship, created. We've been made new. That's why the Bible uses the word born again. Right? I was dead, now I've been born to this new life. I've been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So now we see the whole picture. Now we zoom back out of this painting, this dark thing that was, and then God's intervention, and now we scale back and realize we've been given a new walk. Verse 2 says, we walked in our trespasses and sin. Now what does verse 10 say? It says we walk in good works that God prepared before we ever even existed. We walk. What does walk mean? Ordinary life. Now this is the beautiful thing. This was what was encouraging to my heart this week. This means I have gone from my ordinary life being dead to the things of God to my ordinary life now being alive to the things of God. I walk in them. God has redeemed every facet of your ordinary life. I wake up now in the same house to the family, to the job, to all these things, but alive to the things of God. I see these opportunities with my kids, this, the opportunity, the privilege to love my spouse. Whenever I go to work, now I go to the same store, and as I go to the store, I'm alive to the things of God. I realize God is at work. As I parent and as I work, as I serve, as I play, suddenly it's the same motions that dead people are going through, except I am alive to what God's doing. There's a greater story. There's love and mercy and kindness and goodness, and I get to see it now because God gave me life. It's your ordinary life of this extraordinary mercy of God. That is what his grace accomplished for us. And I access that by faith. That is how I access this life, by faith. My experience of being dead and coming to life, for me, I experience that through faith. Here's what I mean. The Spirit of God, right? So God did this work. The Spirit of God cannot repent for me. The Spirit of God doesn't repent for me. My eyes weep. My heart aches. My mind thinks. My hands release. My feet turn away from sin. I, my experience is I am willingly moving away from the things of the world and sin and everything that existed under this life of death and said I'm choosing life and following Jesus. Leaving that, choosing this. That is my experience of it. But the Spirit cannot believe for me. This is all true. The Spirit of God doesn't believe for me. Rather, my experience has been faith, that I willfully choose faith. I've heard this. I believe it. And my experience is to go, God, I, my heart and my mind connect and say, I'm choosing you. So I have faith, and I'm saved. I'm brought from death to life through this experience of faith. And then as I grow in my life, I look back, 
with this clarity and go, wait a second, God, in, in that moment, all I knew is I was a sinner and I was destined for your wrath. And I heard that through the cross I could be forgiven and I believed it. And so I said, God, I'm choosing life. I'm choosing you. I'm going to follow you. I give my life to you. Like in that moment, that was what I experienced. Now I look back and realize the fact that I ever heard the gospel was a gift from God. The fact that there were people whose lives had been changed to look at me and say, you want Jesus, you don't want a life of sin, was a gift from God. The fact that my heart was prompted whenever I heard these things, that the sound offensive, but true. You mean to say I'm just going about picking my way of life and getting what I want out of life? No one has to convince you of that. We know it's true. And the fact that there's anything stirring in your heart that would go, this is true. That is God intervening to draw you to him. That is a voice of Jesus saying, wake up. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. By faith. That's how we experience this. This is our story. And this is what I want for you. And this is why I believe Paul is writing in the way that he does. Because it's important that we know the whole story, isn't it? We believe this is what was true of us. We know this is exactly what God did. This is how God intervened. And our response to the work God did is faith. Our response is by faith, first of all, to believe, but then this continued belief that we walk in the good works that God prepared for you, that every day you now wake up and say, I'm gonna believe the things of God and what he says about my life and my value and my worth and my purpose. You choose faith every day to and live alive to the things of God. We're gonna respond to this text. I'm gonna invite you to just stand up and uh, as you stand, uh, we're going to pray, and then we're going to worship, because I can't think of anything else to do after hearing this, right? The appropriate thing to do when you hear of the immense grace of God, where you were, what he rescued you from, just because of his love for you, like the right thing to, is just to worship him. So that's what we're going to do, is we're going to pray, then we're going to worship. During that time, here's what I want to invite you to do as well. If you heard this, and you feel God drawing you to come from death to life. The voice of Jesus that says, wake up. I'm just asking you to slip out and head to these double doors that are right back here. We open those up at the end of service, all right? I want you to slide over there. We want to walk with you through that. If God has brought you to life, it's time to walk in the good works that he prepared for you before time even started. He wants you to exist in that life, alive to the things of him. We want to walk with you. So if you say, hey, I'm in, I'm following Jesus. During the song, slip out and head over there. If you've got another decision to make, maybe it's join this church family, uh, find a group, um, and maybe there's something else you need to deal with. Our pastors are back here. We want to pray with you. And then lastly, if you're a guest with us, we've got a gift for you right back there. During this time, again, you can slide out as well. Just come back there and meet us. Uh, we want to get to know your story a little bit and uh, help you take your next steps uh, here and in your faith. We want what God wants for you. So we're going to pray, we're going to worship, and then you move as God leads. Father, thank you. <laughs> I just deeply, deeply, deeply thank you that any of us who stand here aware of you, aware of Jesus, alive to, to the things of you, 
Lord, you gifted that to us. And we're just, we're just really grateful. Lord, help us. Help us in our faith. Live in the belief of the everyday, ordinary things. Seeing where you're at work. God, I pray for those in this room that are dead in their sins. Whether they're the religious, whether they are the devout secular, whatever it is, God, for the ones that refuse to bend their will, refuse to acknowledge this. God, would you wake them up today? Would you stir in them? Let them respond and bring them to life, Lord. We pray, pray that for them. God, meet every one of us. You, we all in this room, God. Meet, meet every one of us where we are so that we might know you more. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.